This guy can talk, but he also loves to listen. This is The Golden Mean with Michael Golden. John Cass, a page two columnist, I think since 1997, but for the Chicago Tribune, um, is with me in the Wrigley Building. He's someone who's writing, especially the way he writes, is something that I really admire, and I really appreciate him taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you for doing thanks this. For, this is, thanks for asking me, Michael. Yeah, it's fun to have you here. We've been on shows the last uh, couple months arguing about politics, and we were talking last night in the break about how even when we disagree, uh, we find places where we agree, and none of it's personal, and we don't. it doesn't seem like... That should be that complicated. You know, it's not, but it is complicated when you replace human beings with uh, na- and names with cartoon heads and fake names, and then it gets, you know, then people get vicious. And Twitter, I think, yeah. You know, media, we just right? did that show. We've, we've done it twice now. The Bruce Dumont's uh, show. Uh, what? Um, Beyond the Beltway. Beyond the Beltway. Yeah. Socialists. Conservatives, <laughs> center left Democrats, thank as you, yourself. Thank you for that. And uh, and uh, everyone got along and had a good time talking. And that was a pretty diverse panel. Well, but all, all the way across. And you know what? He, to his credit, that's 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 a good. Bruce does that intentionally. Yeah. And I wish that uh, uh, more folks would do it. And I don't think I've ever been on that show where uh, there's been personal animus afterwards. And I think, actually, I think that is how it is on a lot of broadcast panels. I think people, especially like you say on social media, they're just, you know, pounding, but let, you know, before we talk about writing in the media and we'll get to that and a little bit of politics and corruption in Chicago, Illinois, your specialty. But you know, when I get somebody who's a renowned writer and, and you're a humble guy, but you you are uh, uh, certainly in in this city, um, I like to talk about writing a little bit and background and what got you here, right? I think that that writers are brave, especially opinion writers, because you're putting something out into the world. If you do it a lot, it's going to be have more a harder and harder edge, um, and it's sort of it's still you can't take it back once you say it. So, but but take me back to the beginning. You, you grew up in Oaklawn, Richards High Schools. You're Chicago native, born, and you born went in the city. Born in the city, fifty second and Peoria. My uncle had a, a snack shop, a restaurant down the street, fifty fifth and Halstead. It was called Lamex, and uh, there that was a, a, a epicenter of politics in the area. The Fourteenth Ward at the time. You grew up with this stuff. I grew up with this stuff. My Uncle John, who used to make uh, great rice pudding, whenever he'd come over to our house, we'd have to stand in the street to stop his car because he couldn't see while he was driving. It was like some big Oldsmobile. It was like, <laughs> Uncle John, wait, Uncle and Uncle John, hey, we're here. And uh, he'd make gallons of it. Anyway, when he lived, when he had the old restaurant, Lamex, they used to have a card game. And the card game was on late Saturday night, early Sunday morning. The 14th Ward, then before Burke, was run by a guy named Judge McDermott, whose brother was the Monsignor McDermott dealing with all the winos, or I can't call them that now, uh, homeless on no, the west is, side. This is in the early 60s. Early right, 60s, late yeah, 50s. And, bef- and before that, before I was born, um, there was an alderman. They had the alderman ready to go. His name was Clarence Wagner. He was going to be the next mayor of Chicago. He was the finance committee chairman. 
So uh, Uncle John had the card game, and Judge McDermott comes back around 6 o'clock in the morning, 7, and Uncle John says, hey, what happened? You forget something? You lost all your money. <laughs> and Judge McDermott says, well, I, didn't, uh, I, got, I got some issues. I got some business with the bank. Now, my Uncle John, who had been a refugee from Bulgaria in the early part of the last century, you know, like 1915 or so, he, uh, he looked at me and he said, when you hear something like that, John, keep your mouth shut because mm -hmm. it was Sunday. So who has business with the bank on Sunday? <laughs> right. And uh, they opened the bank, and um, Clarence Wagner was a depositor. He had a safety deposit box. But he had died the night before. Tragically, his head got cut off in a, in a traffic accident coming back from International Falls, where he was going to come back and become the next mayor of Chicago. And it didn't happen for him. This is a true story here true story and you were a kid this was in your ward this, this was, was this in the ward this I was before i was born but uncle john's telling me the story because he liked politics and he said sometimes you just keep your mouth shut when you hear something like business in the uh -huh. bank on sunday the legend has it that they gave the widow uh ten thousand dollars cash which i guess <laughs> was a lot of money in those days but not nearly what was in that box apparently yeah so you know what i was gonna and we'll so we'll come back to to your personal story in a minute because i was going to ask you this later on but since we're, we're sorry i hijacked no, your no, podcast we're friends that's great that's great because we're right here and this is a question i was going to ask you about chicago political corruption you've been you covered this as a reporter for many years before you were a columnist and and succeeded mike royko on page two which is a uh pretty big shoes to fill i'm sure you're oh, tired of hearing people say that for 20 years i have a 220 pound Polish Ukrainian sitting on my neck right now. Do you want to talk I, I, to him? Isn't, isn't 23, 22 years, 23 years later? That's amazing. That's amazing. So let me ask you though, just going back to that story you yeah. talked about and the sort of that culture of corruption that you already were hearing about, but you know, from 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 the time right before you were born. Here's what here's what boggles my mind in Chicago, in Illinois, but in Chicago about. All these guys getting indicted and convicted year after year after year. I think it's something like 35 in the last 25 years. So right. it's, you know, an average of more than one a year. And here's what I don't understand. Notwithstanding the fact that if you run and serve in elective office and you're doing public service, you shouldn't be doing this at all. That's, that's obvious. That's a granted. But here's the thing I don't understand from a logical standpoint of view. And this is a guy who's run political campaigns do, in Chicago, I, that's Michael. Right. That's you. Okay. I don't understand why these guys, how the stupidity of doing it and thinking no one's listening, that you can get away with it. With the history of Chicago and all the indictments with Rod, you can go back to other governors, right. you can go how back to the Alderman Pritzker. State Labs. Pritzker what? are talking about, uh, oh, there's not uh, African-American candidates don't have the, quote, necessities. I wonder how much that cost him. Well, but you know? but yeah, but you know what I'm talking. I'm yeah. talking about. I'm talking about payoffs. I'm talking about clear bribery. Clear, cl you know these Did guys. Did we land are, the tuna? And they're and, right, and they're right. recorded. I. It, this is my question to you. Why would any of these guys, if you decided to be a criminal in office, think you could get away with it? Um, in Chicago, the cheap crooks are always going to be cheap crooks. It's the the other ones, the ones who are smart, the ones who leverage their private legal business, for example. I'm just taking hypothetical, right? A hypothetical big shot ward committeeman. He's also a lawyer. 
Um, he leverages that law business against his politics. You see that in right, a lot, they, many candidates, even those who say they're they're good government or they they're they're reasonably good government people, they leverage their public positions against their private. And stuff. you're ta- you're talking about people who. Every one do of it them, right almost. up, right. Do it right up to the line carefully, where it's you, you, you. Even if they are recorded, it's it's you. It's not an open and shut quid pro quo. You're talking about that. Kind it's of always stuff. a quid pro quo, and there's there. You don't have a sign, neon sign right. over your head right. saying, "I'm John Cass, uh, Speaker of the House. I run a real estate business, tax reduction business. Do you want to be my friend? I mean, nobody. You don't have to if. If I start talking to you, if you're that person, and I start talking to you like some square, like, oh, Mike, should I get Michael Golden? Should I give you, do you want to, should I give you the money now? If somebody talks like that to you, you would say, excuse me, I don't know what you're talking about, sir. Please but leave some my of them, office. This is my point. Some of them don't. Some of them don't. The cheap in ones, re- yeah. Recent the cheap cases. chiselers, like yeah. leave it, leave it in the envelope. That one guy, remember? Uh, or I need, to, yeah, I need. To, hey, you guys are doing okay. I need to be getting paid a lot more. This Why? is the what, jackpot, the, what, said uh, Luis Arroyo, uh, Representative Arroyo. This is the jackpot, or my one of my favorites. Uh, besides, I like Asian girls, uh, which is Danny Solis, poor guy, is. Uh, uh, Ed Burke saying, and he hasn't been indicted and he's fighting it, but it's going to come up to court. Um, leave it, or did we uh, land the tuna? Excuse me? Yeah. You put that up on a, right. you put, you, when I just talked to a prosecutor for my podcast, uh, Pat Collins, and he said when the FBI hears that stuff, because they're listening to it in real time, they put the salt, the headphones down, they give each other high fives. Like, it's like in the movies, on. actually, but without the the movies don't have the high fives. They're too right. cool in the movies. Yeah, yeah, but in, in real cool. life, when you get somebody, you get somebody. Right. So let me ask you, you know, on uh, one of these shows, you mentioned something. Um, and I think it, I think it was really interesting because your political philosophy has changed over the years. Right. You reported on this stuff for a long time and you've been a columnist uh, uh, for a long time. And you said that. You were more left of center when you were younger. Not that you're the only person, but I'm interested because you're a public voice and uh, people nowadays know you as a conservative voice on page two. Not about everything, but about a lot. In your so, heart, you know I'm right. <laughs> so, so talk to me about how your ideology formed when you were younger and then what we were talking about in terms of larger government and, kid, and why it changed. When I was a kid, it was uh, Jimmy Carter. Right, you were a supporter. We were supporters of Jimmy Carter because Nixon was a crook, and uh, yes, he was wise in the ways of the world, and particularly, and he'll be taught in classrooms. Oh, for sure. Long after Barack Obama is forgotten to the to his dusty library at what two hundred million dollars. Easy now, all right. No, but, no president bashing unless it's but, Nixon or Trump. But uh, we were—that's where I was, you know, and I was a kid of the '60s and '70s. And I thought about progressive. I was like, I wanted to be like these kids now. I wanted to be part of the group. A movement, something bigger than you. You don't want to stand out. It's really hard. And uh, when I was a little kid, it started. Um, Inspectors came to my dad's store. City inspectors. And they said, uh, hey, Greek, those are great steaks. 
looking at the stakes. And my father in Greek said, which means take a bag and fill it. I was eight years old. Wow. And uh, it was a typical city inspector duo. A little Italian guy and a big Irish guy. And they were, they were happy. And my father was happy to pay it. It was a bribe. But he was happy to pay it because that's the way business was done. The city that works. Correct. So I saw that, but I, I got pissed off. Because I, you know what, ribeye steaks, two to a package, are expensive, and we never ate red ribeye steaks at home. We only ate the brown ones we couldn't sell. You were a grocer, wasn't your dad a yeah, grocer? Yeah, my dad was head of a little grocery store, and later a supermarket, and that pissed me off. But then later, covering politics on a daily basis, covering government and politics, you see how powerful how government can hammer people to the ground, and in a feudal democratic state. I'm sure I, I could be the other way if I grew up in a repu- with Republican bosses in a Republican state. And I didn't want to be partisan about it. People say, oh, you're so Republican, you're so... Par-. I'm not a Republican. I was cured of that by George Ryan, uh, Jim Thompson, Jim Edgar, and George Bush for Iraq. I, 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 and I don't, I don't think of you as Republican. I think of you as conservative, so how especially did I, anti-corruption. So how did I get to be a conservative? Because I saw that how government, that government hammer can destroy people's lives. And uh, the only way to deal with it from a re- my perspective, the only way to be rational about it, is to want to limit the scope and size of government. Hence, I became a conservative. I would say a Burkean conservative, not... Uh, Edmund Burke. Ed, not not Ed Eddie. Burke. Ed, Ed, right, right. <laughs> By the way, there's a really nerdy joke. Right, about that. Some, but, but people make it all the time. Yeah. So then let's incorporate that back into my question about the writing. I hope I don't sound too much like a gas bag. I love this stuff. Are you kidding? I love this stuff. Uh, I think people, I think people, especially people who read you, are curious about that. Well, how, how did his uh, political philosophy come into being? You know, some people say, you know, I'm sure, look, like you me. tell me if, what they say. If you're, well, you know, if you're a writer, you, you know, especially someone, I'm not prominent like you. If you're a prominent writer, you get a lot of criticism. Oh, he's uh, reactionary or he's over melodramatic or he's uh, uh, paranoid, right? But, That's what the Daily Guys used to say when I was warning people that the per capita debt was going out of control and it would kill the state. All the Daily guys and the Edgar guys on the Republican side were saying, he's a paranoid psycho. What are you, doing? What are you listening to him for? And now look, people you, are you leaving were, the state. You were doing arithmetic. Well, I'm, I'm not saying I, I'm a genius, but you could see what was happening. They were spending too much and they weren't bringing it in. It's been the same, it's been the same slope for many, many years. So when you're writing your column, this is really a writer-to-writer question, yeah. but I don't care. I want to know. It's my podcast. Okay. Uh, <laughs> how, do you, how do you come up with stories, and then how do you develop them into columns? Like, do you, is there, for me, it's sort of like a headline in my head, and then the rest of it sort of flows. How do you build your columns, and you do it on deadline? That's hard to be a, for a, a an opinion right, for a week on deadline. Talk about your, the, school, huh? the process for sure. You know, um, you've heard of the Walendas, haven't you? Everybody, the flying Walendas, of course. That's what being a writer is all about. And being a newspaper writer, a columnist in Chicago, following Royko, I didn't want to do this. 
following Royko? You didn't. No. I mean, I told him, what, you want to be the, the center fielder after Mickey Mantle in, in, in center field in the, for the Yankees? I mean, that's, you know, the, it was crushing. But I had, I had, a, I had two kids um, married. I had two little boys, and uh, well, it offered me a little bit more money. Not it, a lot. It, it's amazing you say that because, I, and I get it. I just I, wanted to be, I was the political writer right. for the Tribune. And you liked it. I loved it. I, I just wanted to. You know, go to New Hampshire, have steak dinner with Johnny Apple, <laughs> you know, file my Sunday piece and move on. One one piece a week, not four. So and, and so now talk about those four a week and how you go about doing it. I mean, sometimes you'll get obviously uh, you yeah. get tips and you get things like that. But that's a lot of writing to go into your process. There's not a lot of time for reporting because you have four a week and the deadlines now are early. When I started it, the deadline was 9 30, 10 o'clock at night. So I'd get up at, you know, five, six o'clock in the morning and begin reporting all day. Now I gotta have some kind of rough draft by four o'clock and another and finished product by five, given the deadlines. But it is essentially a high wire act. You are out on the wire, especially when you're young a young columnist in Chicago following Mike Rico. You are on the wire with no net. It's uh, it's a high wire act, and uh, you're gonna and you have to know that if you fall, you're dead. So and that means your family's out, and your your children don't get fed, and they have shoes, and a lot. There was a lot of pressure. Where do your ideas come from? I mean, you're following the news all the time, but again, for a week, wh- how do you generate your columns? The first column of the week is generally the nationally syndicated column. So I. Um, I communicate with my editors on that one. Uh, for example, as we're taping this, uh, we're between the, the uh, Super Tuesday and you know South Carolina. So if I'm going to do a political column, it would have to be after Super Tuesday. Otherwise, it doesn't have a shelf life, right? Yeah, I just did this. I did WGN, yeah. and we taped it uh, Friday. And before the South Carolina primary, we Paul Lisnick and I, we had to work around it. It's tricky, right? It really is tricky. tricky. Yeah. So, and then the, then I do local columns. I I interview people. I, I you know look at the the shooting on the L. The two cops uh, lost control of of uh, a man, and uh, the the female officer shoots him, and then chases him up the stairs, shoots him in the back. They're black. He's white. The victim's white. If it were the other way around, we'd know. We have a ritual. We have a liturgy of how we'd perform on this thing. But this is different. So I start thinking of these ideas. And then I read everything I can, like I read your stuff, and I read other people's stuff, and I try to get an idea of where things are going. But generally you think of a central idea, right? which is the hard thing. Same here. You know, you think uh, polit- politics or something social, something stupid that has some meaning. Like I saw somebody. Movies. That's what I sent you movies, the other night. Yeah. You were a film major for a while in yes, Columbia. I, I thought of you when I when I did that on the Ides of March. I was thinking, that I wonder if really I was nice. going to send it to you. I was wondering if you'd seen that movie. And, and I try to do a series about that. But right, pop, pop culture, that kind of stuff. Uh, 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 inspires ideas too for you. It does, but also, and you know, I, I saw a friend tweet out something, a picture of a guy at a Mariano's drinking soup from the, you know, soup stand. 
He was drinking it from the ladle. Yeah. And I'm thinking that with coronavirus, I'd want to chop that guy's hands off. But, <laughs> I mean, would that make a column? I don't know. You know, oh, my God, John, you're so rude. You're so mean. I love it when people call me mean. Like, if you agree with them, then you're not mean. Then right. you're brilliant. But if you disagree, then you're mean and you're a jerk. Well, but also, you have... Look, every columnist has a different style, right? Uh, uh, like, for instance, David Brooks. Uh, he's sort of a center-right conservative. A lot kind of people of don't think he... Well, well, see, that's what you said, squishy. A lot of people think, you know, he th- he doesn't have an edge to these things. He's very reasoned. He's very... So, you know, he's not... He, he's, you have Why would totally, you read him? You, well, he, actually, I, I like his writing. It's just a different style. But mm. yours, the reason they probably say that, you are hard-edged. And you, when, you, when you've got people in the crosshairs or you think that, that you know, Know, they've got something to answer for. Your language is tough on them. I am tough on people. And sardonically, I'm tough on, I'm tough on I'm I'm tough on politicians. I don't mock. One thing I I, I don't like in, in journalism now the mocking and we've talked about this, Michael. Yeah. The mocking of voters. I've seen this in journalism where voters themselves are mocked for taking a view that maybe I disagree with, but you're no better or worse. You're not better or worse than anybody. That's being a, an American is you know that we're all we're equal in this regard. I mean, you might be be a better golfer than me, but you're not a better person, or you shouldn't be held as you could. I'm th- I'm serious. You are a better person than I am, but you know what I mean. You don't judge people down. You don't scrape yeah. them off your shoe. And I've seen a lot of journalism that's cheap doing that, and the mocking. And then, then the mocking and uh, sarcasm of journalism now, it's like, ha, 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 I was just joking. Like, I don't really have to take a stand because I'm just going to mock everything. And then, uh, not me, but I, I read that. I read that I'm just going to take it. I'm, I'm going to mock everybody. And you see that in many newspapers. Yeah, I don't like to do that, and I. I you got to take a stand. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I'm was I'm careful about that, especially with voters, even who I vehemently disagree with. And last night when we were on that show, actually, uh, I think something I said got misunderstood. So there's a fine line because I I said something about the president being a buffoon, and I used the word buffoon, which is a strong word. I don't usually use that. I realized after the show, but I did mean it. And then you and or uh, Charles and the sort of conservative and, you know, said to me, you're that's the reason that he could win again because of looking down on those voters. And I clarified and I said, I didn't say I didn't I'm not looking down on them. I think a lot of Trump voters, if you strap a polygraph to them, they'd say, yes, he's a buffoon, but I wanted him to blow up the system. He, he does things that are, you know, they are buffoonish. If you're if you're an adult and you've observed human behavior, he he does some of them for effect, and some people may like it. But I you've think never my response seen... to you was that it'll be taken care of when we when they compete in all fifty seven states. You said that right. I think that Charles maybe, but well, that that's that's true. But my point was, I, there I think, are not fifty seven states. I know that. I, I, <laughs> okay. that, I think that I think that uh, people for, forgive him a lot of that. You know, they acknowledge it like, oh, he's just screwing you around. Know what? Don't, I, don't, you, you know, know what I find? I find that uh, the pursuit of virtue in politics is a child's game. It has nothing to do with virtue, and part of the way um, guys on your side, not Democrats, I'm talking about your profession, your other profession. Yeah you sell a candidate is to focus on their virtue 
But really, is isn't that just a baby way of? It's a baby's way of looking at it because what is politics? It's the art of who gets what, when, where, and how much, and selling it and selling that idea, right? Right, but and people s- buying you, what you're selling. But you wrap it up, Michael. Not you, but but yeah, yeah. The, the consultants wrap it up as this is the virtuous position. Therefore, others who are opposed are not virtuous. I find it to be very um, limited, but I, I people want to people want to be tribal. They want to be part of a team. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point, but I think it's not uh, all or nothing. There are sometimes consultants will cut ads that you know it's an introduction to someone and who they are first, and then they'll start you know hammering issues or or that kind of thing. It also depends on the position, right? If you're you know in this Kim Fox race, uh, mm-hmm. their opponents are making it a lot about virtue because they're basically trying to contrast and saying. Her behavior as state's attorney has not been virtuous. So here's the contrast. So I think it's case by case. But I do, I do get what you're saying. I do, I do understand what you're saying. By the way, one of the hard edges you take in your column with some of these nicknames, Madaganistan. Uh, I, I want to, I want you to tell people the origin of Chumbalone because I don't. I think a lot of people don't really. You may have may have defined this once or twice way back when in your column, but d- define a Chumbalone for Chicagoans and people who aren't in Chicago right. who don't know what that means. I found you know I'm, I'm we're moving, so I'm cleaning out my downstairs office. You know the one I have. I have a separate room. It's an office and. I've got a lot to clean out. And I found an old hat that a reader had sent me. And I wish I had a, a picture of it. it. It's a black baseball cap with, and it just says, no chumbalone and a, and a you know, line through the O of chumbalone, like zero, you know, do not, do not enter. And uh, the way that story came about, you remember Family Secrets? Yeah. Family Secrets, for those of you who don't know, it was the, Huge case involving the out, Chicago outfit, yeah. and the the U.S. Attorney's Office broke it down, and the FBI broke it down. And uh, I was part of that from the very beginning because I had a story that a hitman was being brought around the city to various locations, freaking out all the outfit bosses. And I was going to write it, and I I got a call from a, from people at the FBI. And they said, if you write this story, you will, the case will blow up. We're not ready. And I, I had to wrestle with this. You know, what, what are my responsibilities as a journalist? What are my responsibilities as a citizen? What is the larger, greater good? I mean, all the stuff that you never associate with me, all you people out there. But uh, I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. I couldn't roll a story that would destroy an investigation because I'd seen other reporters do stories like that. I'm not going to say which ones because then you're going to put two and two together. But big federal investigations that break right before the big fish get caught. Isn't it funny how that happens? Like there's no coincidence in the world in Chicago, okay? Coincidences are for suckers. But I didn't want to be doing that. So I, I waited, and uh, ironically enough, when Jeff Cohen wrote his uh, column or his book, my colleague on uh, Family Secrets, he had it in there that I got the information from the FBI. That and I couldn't tell him at the time, no, 
um, I, I talk to the Boy Scouts and I talk to the Bad Scouts. I talk to everybody, yeah. all politicians, everything. So what happened was eventually the, uh, the, the, I did write the story. They indicted the, the mob bosses. It went to trial. And one of the people on trial was named Frank Calabrese. He was the boss of Chinatown, oh, yeah. which is the boss of Bridgeport in that area. And uh, he's not, by the way, he's not Chinese, you know, in Chinatown. I used to say that in the column. It, people think that you run, the guys who run Chinatown are Chinese, you're naive. And editors would say, what is this? What do you mean? I said, just leave it in there. Don't even, don't even <laughs> Get ask. Get out me. on the you're street from and Michigan. do some reporting. You yeah, you're from right. Michigan. You don't know anything. So, so um, Chumbalone. So Chumbalone. So in the, in the case, there was a police officer who was planted by the outfit to be in the evidence section. His name was, a Finch, uh, originally his name was Anthony Pasiafumi. Wait, who was already a cop? He was a copper. He was pl- uh, right, so he was cooperating. Guess he was what? a cop. Guess what? The outfit has cops. Yeah. So, do, so does the El Chapo. Right. El Chapo has cops, okay? Got everybody. They got, they got people. So anyway, here's this cop in the evidence section. He hears that the FBI is looking for a bloody glove from a shooting of like 20 years ago. And he runs and tells his superiors, not in the uh, police department. Yeah, right, his other right? superiors. His other, and it was like mother superior. <laughs> and uh, he runs and tells them. And then that becomes part of the case. So they, they're, the FBI is taping him as he's talking to Frank Calabrese in prison. And Frank Calabrese is saying to Anthony Pasiafumi, who later became uh, Officer Doyle, Officer Doyle, sorry, that's my uh, diabetes meter. You got to check it. Officer Doyle, now, right, good name, right? You pick Doyle. <laughs> yeah, Weasel, right. I got that from know, the movie, yeah. Right? I mean, he looks like Jimmy two times right out of, uh, you know, out of Goodfellas. <laughs> I watched that over the weekend. It's so yeah, funny. It's, awesome. it's fantastic. Two times, two times. So then he's ta- So Doyle is talking to, um, sorry, Doyle is talking to uh, Frank Calabrese in prison. And in prison, Frank Calabrese is like, we should get cattle prods on these witnesses, maybe give them a, you know, give them a tune-up, give them a turban. You know, I, you know, a turban is like when you crack somebody's skull so they have to wear a turban. It's yes, like gauze. it's a colloquialism. Yeah, it's a colloquial, criminal. It's a colloquialism, yeah. kind of like I recuse myself as a colloquialism <laughs> to Kim Fox. But um, so then they're like, and you agreed to all this stuff that – you kept nodding and saying yes, yes to all this stuff about the the cattle prods and the beating of witnesses. Why did you do that? And he said, and uh, Anthony Pasiafumi Doyle, police officer, said, well, I, I didn't want to look like no idiot. I didn't want to look like no chum alone. <laughs> that's where I was from, and right? that's where it is. So then ever since then, <laughs> I've just used the term chum alone. <laughs> that is, is stupid a, that is no that is a great payoff for that story and the story itself is is a gem that's the thing it's so what an interesting what an interesting uh, uh scenario you brought up real life that that journalists uh, face you know there's uh, uh, in terms of deciding between law enforcement and your story in a case there's a I'm you sure don't want to carry water for well, them right. but you don't want to screw up a case 
that involves homicide. There, there's ethics involved, and actually, there's a movie. It's probably ten years old now. It was a little, you know, big stars, but not, <laughs> not uh, you know, a blockbuster called State of Play. I don't know if you see what Ben Affleck and Russell Crowe and no, Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe's the journalist, and yeah. Ben Affleck's the congressman, and there's a crime, and the police co- walk into this newspaper with the with the publisher and Russell Crowe, who's the writer, and said. Why didn't you guys turn this evidence over to us? There's there are two people dead because you didn't turn evidence over to us and you know we're working on a case and and you know there's this right. huge tension there and yours is you've come up again uh, across this in real life journalism, right? To where you're ahead of you're a, you're ahead of them on some stuff or you're catching up to them and you're about to make the, it public. You know what was really uh, worrisome was that why did why did the outfit know what the FBI was doing? With Nick Calabrese, he was the killer of I don't know how many dozens of people. How did they know that Nick Calabrese was being driven around town? Maybe somebody saw him. Then it turned out, long time later, that a, a U.S. deputy marshal had been talking to a childhood friend. The friend was an older man um, who uh, who had served time with that marshal's father in the Marquette 10 police corruption case of protecting drug dealers on the west side. So the marshal's telling this guy who served time with his father uh, all about it. And this guy apparently is running to the outfit and telling them Nick Calabrese is active. You know what happened after this case? The marshal went to jail. His career was blown up. And the guy who ran to the outfit and... uh, you know, blabbed. He got two uh, liquor licenses in the city of Chicago for bars. Nice deal. How about that? So there's no coincidences. You know that. You know, let me, I can ask you a last question, bring yeah. it around. And We're make done? It, make it about. starting. I can keep, we can keep going. Keep going. <laughs> Go on. I want to ask you about Chicago as a, as a city look you're a lifelong chicagoan we talked about a lot about political corruption and 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 the, the seedier side of the city and its and its politics and and history but and by the way that's obviously a huge part of chicago lore if you're not from chicago look there's there's museums set up here to talk about that stuff but but not to get sentimental here but you i know i know you also love the city of Chicago. I love it. Talk about that. Talk about being a lifelong Chicagoan and loving it despite all of these things that reporting and, and, and editorial writing has given you an up-close and sometimes a, a ugly view of. Um, I love the people of the city and all the people, not just some. And I think that, you know, we're stuck in a feudal society our politics are basically feudal politics. And uh, the people have been taught to take their cap off, doff your cap and bow and bend your knee or curtsy when the great man rolls through, some political boss. You know, I've seen it, and so have you, time and time again. That, that's wrong. But the people are decent people, and even they're, they're, they're fighting against great odds to love their city and stay. And uh, I'll, I'll uh, give you... Uh, break some news on your show i'm moving back to the city of chicago wow that is news yeah I, for I, people who know you moved you make you've written about why I've, you moved out and- i moved out when uh, my 
children were about to be born, and uh, we had had in our home in on the north side, we had had break-ins, and um, a guy broke in on my wife when she was by herself, and he didn't know that she was a crazed Sicilian and she started chasing him around the uh, table and he jumped out the window. But when I, is that, well, hold on a second. Is that a true story? That is a true story. But, uh, but it could have been, it could have been bad, you know, it could have been bad. So I said, I'm out. And then there were political people from, you know, the daily group. They're like, John, no matter what you say, you can rip on rich and all that, but your kids will be taken care of in their school, whatever school. I'm like I can't, I can't do that. You see, that was the brilliance of Rich Daly, that magnet school thing, because it keeps beefers quiet. Mm. You want a beef? Well, maybe your kid won't get in. Maybe you'll need. Maybe your kid won't pass that test, and you need to have clout to get your kid into a magnet school. Do you absolutely believe that that's an overt strategy of Daly within four walls? Did, did I think that Rich Daly has the brains to come up with it? No, but I think that he had that people around him had the wherewithal to see the benefits of it. Um, and so I left because I I couldn't be a newspaper guy and be beholden to anybody. And people rip me for it. I've been ripped every day. They're still doing it, these trolls on Twitter. Yeah, why he doesn't do you, live in yeah. he doesn't live in the city. What shut up, you don't live in the city. Why why I what? I grew up here. I bled here. My family uh, uh we we uh employed generations of people in this town so they could you know, take care of their children, and you're telling me because you moved from Gross Point, Michigan, and you li- and you wear yellow mustard pants while you're driving your stupid little bike <laughs> on Milwaukee <laughs> Avenue, so I can't take a, a left turn and get into Piccolo Sonio. You're telling me I'm not Chicago? Bleep you, dude. Anyway, so we're moving back in. I don't know if I'm going to buy. Um, I don't know if it's, I'm. We're going to rent, but I don't know if I'm going to buy because. I don't think Pritzker or the county or the city is giving me a reason to stay. And that's the thing that's really most heartbreaking. They're not giving people a reason to stay. You know, and bringing back to the the positive things you said about the people here, I I – I, I lived in California uh, reporting out there in Iowa, so, and I lived in Missouri doing politics and, and taught in Arizona. I've spent some time away from Illinois. And, uh, and in the last few years, since I've gotten more enmeshed back into the city media-wise, political, everything, I've never appreciated it more in my life. I'm 53 and maybe it's age. Still a baby. Yeah, right. right. Maybe it's just uh, stuff I've been through the last few years. But I have to tell you, I've never been. Uh, look, the, it's problems. It's money. All that, yeah. you know, the taxes, all that stuff. Yes, I understand. You know, our friend Dan Proft, he's probably moving to Florida uh, uh, because of that. But but I've never been prouder of the history, the people, the institutions of Chicago that I think I took for granted for a long time. Uh, now, I think outside of the weather, pound for pound, this is the best city in the country. I really do. It is, and the people are the best. And you know what? You can have I, – I, I read travel. You know, well, I don't read it anymore, but I, I watch it. You know, like House – uh, my wife watches this nonsense – 
uh, inter- international house hunters or something where people are looking for beautiful vi- villas in Tuscany. But hey, I'm not a public school administrator. I can't afford that <laughs> uh, on retirement because I'm not going to have a retirement. But um, they look at all these beautiful landscapes and all the people and everything, the, the traveling, you know. You know, to me, the ideal the landscape of my life sitting on the stoop of a two-flat, looking out, having a cigar on a July day, listening to the White Sox on a radio, and drinking a hams. That's hams. Do they still make hams? And looking out, looking out on the back lots, backyards, seeing the the Cinderella's and the Blue Virgins in in the backyards. That's what you grew up with. That's, but that's, that's to me, that to me, I mean. That's the quintessential Chicago to you. Well, it's definitely not the Gold Coast because our neighbors didn't buy uh, uh, mansions that they could rip the toilets out of and get 300000 <laughs> You always have to I'll bring it back. I'll never let to, that guy go. Never. <laughs> you always bring it back to the right, governor. Right. No, but that's, that, is, that was your experience growing up. Correct. That's the, that's the simple pleasures of you know your memory, your childhood, what you grew up with. Look, you started out of the gate with that story uh, about your uncle. It's it's fantastic, and not it's not a pleasant story. But the point is, you, that's that's the stuff of Chicago, and it's why you still like writing. Really, to pull this full a, circle, right? There was a, we we uh, we talked. I did a piece on when Blagojevich, which I did not not like. I did not like Trump letting him go. And I said so and criticized. And people, you know, they're so tribal. They hate me so much, at least those on the far left, that they can't realize that I wrote that piece. They're like, you still kissing Trump's ass? I said, no, I didn't. I wrote this piece. People, We talked about this. People have trouble conceding a point to the other side no matter what. I criticized them for it. But in that piece, I wrote about the deconstruction in order to build Rod Blagojevich, they had to deconstruct Danny Rustenkowski. Wow. And Eric Holder took him down on the, on the stamps. And Billy Daly became the clout in Washington. And um, Bl- Blagojevich got moved into the spot. They had a Republican there for two years, and he was just going to lose. And they, they took him out. And then Blagojevich came in and Rahm Emanuel... And I got a call from some politicians. They're like, you hate us. Why are you writing this? You hate us. You know, the old timers. And I'm like, look, if I don't write this story, nobody else is going to write it because nobody else knows or the guys who know don't write a column. If I don't write this story, no one else will know. I mean, and I have to guard myself against having a big head about it. I don't want Like, I'm not the end-all, be-all authority of everything. But certain things I do know. Yeah, that's not and your they, personality at all. And yeah. they want they want they want you to forget it. Yeah. But I don't want to forget it. Am I crazy? No, it's history. It's it, well, first of all, it's you a, were there. You saw it, it. It's a subjective thing. If you if you believe it, and you not just believe it. If you believe you know it, but if you believe it's meaningful, that's what a opinion leader. That's what a columnist does. You're you're obligated to speak your mind if you believe it's important. I don't know how long I'm going to be doing this because there's changes coming. Um, I do know that every day I do it, I am in awe of the joy of it that I've been given and the responsibility. And I love the Chicago Tribune and I love the readers. 
And I'll just say I want to keep doing it for as long as I can. Uh, it's, a, it's just it, I'm so glad that you said that. There, there. Look, I, I, um, there are times when when I read your column and I am just cheering right on. And there, of course, there are columns where I'm saying, "What? I can't believe John is writing this." But the point is, you jump along. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the point is regardless first of all i just i'm an admirer of the art of writing because i it, you know i never th- think i'm even a above average writer and you're always trying well, as a writer to get better and better so when i see your writing and and people who, whose talent i admire not just the reporting but the actual writing uh, and the wit and the you know the weaving it and making and, and making a, a circle out of an argument um I, I i just i notice that stuff and so I'm and also I think it's I think it's like I said in the beginning I think it's brave what opinion leaders do and especially the ones that take hard edges and 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 call BS and corruption where they see it and back it up and you've done that for a long time. It would be a lot easier if I were uh, died in the wool liberal Democrat (laughs) then people in this town wouldn't hate me so much but I can't help it guys. If people aren't pissed, you're not you're not making a dent, right? Uh, um, and and you know what? Everybody's 330 million Americans. Everybody has a vote if you're registered and a citizen. And everybody, whether you're re- registered or not a citizen, has an opinion, right? So wh- why is theirs more important th- than yours? Yours is in the newspaper, and you earn the right to write it. Period. Last thing I'll say: the quote, the phrase of this. The, I wrote it down. The phrase of this show, and I, I'll probably use it for years. Quote: This is John Cass. Coincidences are for suckers. <laughs> That is about in Chicago. That is about, uh, you've probably written that in a column and I just don't remember it, but that is truly, uh, as as your podcast is named, that is the Chicago way. Thank you for doing it. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me.